episode of The Green Rush is sponsored by our friends over at Agilent, a Fortune 500 company known for providing top-notch testing solutions to cannabis and hemp testing labs worldwide. If you're a cannabis cultivator, processor, testing lab, or otherwise just have a need to test your cannabis in-house, then you need to listen up because Agilent is giving away a free year's use of their 1260 HPLC system, which tells you all kinds of important things about your growing marijuana. If it would benefit your business to know exactly the right moment when to harvest your cannabis would be, then you need to enter Agilent's contest. Or maybe you could benefit from having a better sense of how your extraction processes are going. Agilent's 1260 HPLC system can do that for you too. Given that it's free and easy to sign up for Agilent's contest, which does end at the end of this month, it's kind of a no-brainer. Swing over to bit.ly.com slash cannabis dash contest today and sign up for your chance to win a free year's use of Agilent's 1260 HPLC system. That's bit.ly.com slash cannabis dash contest. Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. Today, Nick and Ann are sitting down with Doug Drysdale, CEO of Cybin Inc., a leading biotechnology company focused on progressive psychedelic therapeutics to treat psychiatric disorders utilizing proprietary drug discovery platforms, innovative delivery systems, and novel formulations and treatment regimens. Our hosts sat down with Doug to talk about all things Cybin, including the company's recent listing on the Neo Exchange, its partnership with Catalent and Kernel, its expanding IP portfolio, as well as its growth and expansion plans for 2021 and beyond. In addition, we look at the future of regulations for the psychedelic space, when clinical data may become available, and the similarities and differences between psychedelics and cannabis for investors. Cybin is one of the most exciting companies in the nascent psychedelic space, and it was a real treat to chat with Doug and get an in-depth look at how the company is differentiating itself from its competitors. Now, on to our conversation with Doug Drysdale of Cybin. Today we are diving into um, some more psychedelics companies, um, and today we're talking to Doug Drysdale, who is the chief executive officer of Cybin. Um, they trade over on the Neo, uh, the ticker CYBN. Um, Doug, thank you so much for coming uh, on the show today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and and what made you get into psychedelics? Sure. Thanks for having me, uh, Anne and Nick. So uh, pleasure to be on the show. Um, yeah, like I, I've been in healthcare for for thirty years, uh, ten years in Europe, and twenty years in the US. Um, the last dozen years or so, I've been the CEO of four different pharma companies: uh, two public, two private, two startups, and two turnarounds. So quite a mix of things. Wow, uh, <laughs> you've seen it all. A few things, a few a few stories. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, you know, my my exposure to I'd say. Uh, depression and addiction, which is what these substances address, 
started quite early in my career. When I first left high school, I worked in a, in a hospital uh, biochemistry lab. And so I'd be there in the middle of the night looking at uh, testing blood samples coming out of the ER. And when you're there, you kind of uh, you realize that at that time of the day, uh, almost all of the, uh, the people coming into the ER, all the admissions are teenagers uh, attempting suicide or, or, or getting drug overdoses. So it really hits hard. And, uh, and I'd say over the years, too, I've worked in a number of companies where we were focused on central nervous system uh, disorders across the spectrum. And then, you know, family and friends, like, like all of us, you know, I have family and friends that have suffered from depression, addiction, even suicide. You know, so, so when the opportunity came along uh, to contribute uh, into the space here to move the science forward at, at Cybin, I was you know, very excited to jump on board. So tell us a little bit about Cybin then. What made it special? Um, and, you know, you left a, a career, um, you know, that was kind of going in one direction. And what made you, you know, decide that Cybin was the company for, for your next trajectory? I think myself and the founders of Cybin uh, each shared a common, uh, you know, common goal to really revolutionize mental health care. And, and every one of us has been touched by you know, depression or addiction in, in some ways. So for, for all of us, it's personal. And I would say that for many members of the team that have come on board since then, you know, the company is much larger now. And uh, we see very strong motivations and a lot of, uh, a lot of folks eager to join our team because of that. You know, the, the, the company was incubated throughout 2019, uh, incorporated late that year, and we've, we've come a long way since then. We, we've done four oversubscribed financing rounds. We've raised about $90 million uh, to date. Uh, and most of that, what's humbling is most of that's come from large U.S. blue chip biotech funds. So a real validation of the team and, and of what we're doing. Um, we're listed on the Neo Exchange, as you said. Uh, we did that last November. We were also uh, uh, uplisted to the OTCQB venture market in March of this year. And uh, what a lot of people may not know is that we are MJDS eligible to cross list to a US tier one exchange uh, mm. in the near future. So that, that's exciting, I think. That that definitely is exciting, and I, I think we'll want to continue to explore what the, the future growth of, of Cybin looks like. But can you dive a little bit deeper into uh, Cybin's IP portfolio? You know, what's what's moving forward within your guys' uh, development pipeline? Yeah, obviously in drug development where uh, the, the, the investments needed are, are huge, uh, IP is really important. Uh, so we've filed 10 patents to date. And they cover a wide range of, of claims, hundreds and hundreds of claims around drug delivery mechanisms, uh, a specific chemistry we're using called deuteration uh, to deuterate tryptamines, ergolines, and phenethylamines, so three different types of classes of molecules that we're working on. And as uh, IP covers novel molecules for use in various psychiatric disorders, uh, and we have many more uh, patents in the works, <clears throat> it's, an, it's an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. And and so, are you guys looking at any specific indications? We we've talked to a lot of different companies, you know, that are trying to treat PTSD or traumatic brain injury. Or what what are you guys looking at solving? I know you mentioned de- depression earlier, but um, is is it solely focused on that, or are there other um, you know mental health disorders that you're also addressing? Yeah, so we are looking across the spectrum. Our initial program is focused on depression, and uh, we have some ongoing internal work where we're investigating potential. Uh, in, in addiction and other disorders. Uh, and, but it's really exciting that there's some really compelling evidence for really powerful efficacy of these classical psychedelics 
uh, molecules in depression and addiction. Uh, and what's different, I think, is you see, unlike chron typical chronic treatments you see today, many patients can get remission of their symptoms completely for five or six months at a time from just one or two doses. And for me, what's powerful about that is uh, the ability to free someone from their depression or from their addictive cravings for that long is potentially life-changing. When you think about re removing the craving from an addict for five or six months and giving them a clean space to get their lives together, you know, to reconnect with family, get a job or maybe get off the street. Uh, and that's impacting just one life. But when you think about scaling that and, you and, and applying this impact to inner cities or, or low-income rural areas, that have really been plagued by the opioid crisis. And then you have the potential to change the social and economic future of entire communities. So, yeah, we're on a real uh, real mission to change the world here. Do you think that we are at a unique moment in time? I mean, uh, the New York Times uh, had an article, I think it was last week, um, saying that, that things like eating disorders um, have been on the rise, especially since um, the the pandemic, and you know people are 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 home a lot. They're isolated, um, and that's kind of very triggering for people with um, addiction issues or um, or eating disorders, um, even you know anxiety and PTSD. Um, are you finding it? You know, you've been kind of in the CNS space for your whole career. Are you finding it? Um, more accepted to talk about these issues? Um, and if so, why? Yeah, I, th I think that's true. I mean, there's no doubt that during this pandemic uh, that there's been an increase in, in mental health disorders, you know, anxiety, uh, addiction, depression. Uh, and I, I saw a study recently that, that indicated that maybe one in eight people uh, that had suffered from COVID um, may develop some form of mental health disorder within six months uh, after. Wow! So this is just the beginning of what we're seeing. Um, but but you're right. I think the other thing that's occurred during this pandemic is, and um, I guess an awareness of the issue, and uh, and a greater willingness to talk about it, and uh, and that's a real step forward. And then you combine that with what's been happening with, you know, the um, the, the increasing legalization of, of cannabis, uh, the de increasing decriminalization of psychedelics, and you kind of put the two those two things together, that sort of uh, uh, socio-criminal justice kind of uh, evolution and the mental health evolution, and it is a bit of a perfect storm for us right now. So on that point, then continuing to, to to build off of it, you know, we're at this unique point in time. Do you see, you know, either from Health Canada or the FDA, a, a fast track on these types of innovative mental health treatments? Like cannabis is coming through, but that's not really going to be something that's going to move the needle for for you know licensed therapists and stuff to to really address these issues. Are we going to see? you know, in, in your opinion, like a, a massive push from f federal governments to try and get these uh, out in a place where, you know, people can actually use these? Yeah, and I, I would draw the line as a, I, between two different aspects here. Um, <clears throat> first of all, there is this wave of decriminalization. Uh, and I think it's good to see the kind of widespread acknowledgement that the war on drugs has not been working. Right. And now we can stop putting people in jail for for personal possession or for or, or for use of some of these substances, and that isn't an important criminal justice issue, no, no doubt. 
Um, and it does. I think it does go to the sentiment of the general public towards these uh, these kinds of substances. But I think there is a difference between decriminalization and widespread federal legalization for commercial sale. They're quite different things. And when you read this, the fine print of many of these bills that have gone through many states and cities, there's quite a distinction there. I think the widespread legal commercial sale of psychedelics will only come as a result of running well-controlled clinical studies that demonstrate safety and efficacy of psychedelic molecules for use in a cl clinical setting. And I think FDA is saying that as well. They've granted breakthrough therapy status to psilocybin and to MDMA. And I think what they've done there is they've basically said, we think these molecules are important and they have real value. But development companies, Cybin and others, show us the data, you know, show us the safety and efficacy data. And then, so I think FDA is pitching it up here for 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 success, and I think it's a very smart way to go. Once you have that that data, uh, then the whole scheduling question is moot in my mind. And I, you know, and I think given the missteps in the sixties and seventies that put these valuable treatments on the shelf for sixty years, we, we've got to take this kind of responsible approach to it. Yeah, a hundred percent agree. I, I, you know, I, I've seen the, we've all seen the movement of like, you know, in Oregon and stuff to to decriminalize, try and make some type of market for it. I think you're spot on though that that the data really is going to be the key driver here. And Ann and I have had conversations with a ton of reporters about like. The, this data and how important that's going to be to covering the future of this industry. And so we know that you guys are in uh, uh, phase two and uh, a couple of other early preclinical phases on some of the, the molecules you're working on. When do you think that we might be able to start seeing more of that, that relevant data that's going to help push this forward? Because it seems like that's what the, the big thing that everybody's waiting on. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think we obviously we're still a few years away from uh, the, the first generation of, of psychedelic molecules coming to market. And then behind that, at, like at Cybin, we're, we're already working on second generation or psychedelics 2.0, uh, improving the classical psychedelic molecules and, and some of the challenges we have with them. But over this next year or so, I think we're going to start to see some real data. So there's, it's time now we're moving away from maybe a bit of the hype into kind of show me the money. Um, there's been a, ton, a lot of these smaller academic studies at institutions like Johns Hopkins and NYU and Imperial College. But now's the time. The challenge now comes from translating those small studies into larger placebo-controlled, randomized uh, studies in a clinical setting. And, uh, you know, MAPS uh, is uh, in pretty late stages with its, uh, with its MDMA for PTSD. Uh, I believe that that phase three study is essentially complete. We're just waiting on the data. Uh, I'm, I'm confident it's going to be very positive. Um, and I think we're going to see data, you know, phase two data from, from Compass Pathways, from Cybin in the you know, not too distant future. And it'll be it'll really start to put some science uh, around these molecules in a much more uh, structured way than we've seen so far. 
So speaking about the show me the money, <laughs> um, you're not just about the the clinical trials. You're also about um, you know some of the technology. Um, you know that's that that will help sort of measure efficacy. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your partnership with Kernel uh, and its neuroimaging technology? And that and for those who haven't seen the helmet, we'll make sure we include uh, a link in the show notes because it's super cool. Yeah, I mean, that is the first part. I'd, I'd say it is super cool. <laughs> um, but also... Is that, that, is that technical scientific <laughs> jargon? That, that's the technical term for it. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, but also uh, such an amazing group of people over at Kernel as well. And you know, what they've achieved is, is quite amazing. Uh, what they've done is they've miniaturized an, a technology that existed already. It's near-infrared spectroscopy. Uh, that's been used for neuroimaging. <clears throat> but in the past, it didn't have the definition or the complexity to give us enough, enough data. So they've created brand new lasers that are much more intense. They shoot something like uh, a billion photons a second into the, uh, sorry, the, the detectors detect a billion photons a second, and the photons are pulsing in like 200 times a second. Um, but what they've, what, what they've done through the miniaturization is that they've completely changed the, the landscape in terms of our ability to uh, detect brain activity. In the past, these kind of uh, technologies were this, like fMRI, for example, were the size of a room and cost millions of dollars, and they need a PhD tech to run them. So, so getting patients into these devices or getting access to the technology on a regular basis was really difficult. So. I think we can't underestimate the, the the value of this miniaturization. It allows us with this kernel flow device, as you say, which is a wearable helmet, we expect to get far more access to patients and therefore we can collect far more data uh, on, a, on an ongoing basis, on a longitudinal basis, so before, during and after uh, a psychedelic treatment, which may give us enough quantitative data that we can help design drugs more specifically or help shape drug development programs more specifically. So you're basically in real time able to see someone who is effectively tripping through a treatment. So, um, you know, seeing how they react, because I think it's also, um, from, from what I've read, so many different people have different reactions to different molecules. Um, so do you see this as, um, as a way to kind of find the best treatment on a, on a personal level for people? Yeah, that's possible. We may be able to see patterns. I'm not sure we'd get down to an individual uh, level, but it's about collecting data across larger data sets. But we may determine that there might be specific genetic biomarkers or demographics that, behave, that react differently to different molecules. So that's something we'll see as we get collect more and more of this data. And as I said in the past, you can't keep putting people in an fMRI machine. In a, imagine being on a psychedelic drug in a metal tube with oh. 120 decibels. <laughs> it gives me anxiety <laughs> thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's stick, uh, you know, talking about, um, you know, the growth of Cybin. And, and you guys also recently announced the acquisition of Adelia Therapeutics. Can you talk about how um, that acquisition and what you guys are going to be, uh, you know, adding into your into your business of to, you know, impact your IP portfolio? Yeah. So the acquisition of Adelia, yes, did bring IP, uh, but also really strong medicinal chemistry 
and deep drug development expertise uh, into Cybin. And as a growing company, that was really valuable. It, the, t- the team is amazing, has published 300 peer-reviewed papers, uh, far more than 85 patents. Uh, they managed more than 60 IMD programs with the FDA. And I think that really sets us apart from many companies in the space that are not necessarily staffed by pharma industry experts. So I think that makes us really strong. Uh, but most importantly, you know, the deal, the transaction brought us just a fantastic group of people uh, that have a shared vision to completely change how we treat mental illness. Well, let's keep on that because, you know, it, you've Adelia is very, very interesting. Kernel is very interesting. Uh, you brought up a good point there about, like, you know, what how this sets you apart from other uh, some of these other companies that are jumping into the space that are, are looking to, you know, piggyback off the momentum that's going on here. When you're in a, you know, in the room with investors, how is it that you're talking about the company to, you know, when you're comparing yourself to other players in the space? How are you describing what makes Cybin unique? Yeah, from from the outset, we've always we've always thought about patients first, uh, and that's always the way you should design uh, drug therapies and the ther- and the development programs that feed into them. And uh, you know, one of the major issues with the psychedelic treatments that are currently in development today is that they're very long acting, they're very long treatment durations. We talked about PTSD and the MAPS program, and and given all credit for everything they've done, obviously they've they've been groundbreaking, but that program has 70 hours of therapy around it. And and we see other treatments in depression uh, that are six to eight hours in in duration. And and we see these long durations as potentially a barrier to access for patients, and then maybe a barrier to reimbursement by payers, which, which is critical here. So at Cybin, we're working to optimize the treatments by taking, we're taking, instead of taking the, the long acting treatments and trying to make them shorter, we're taking very short acting tryptamines. An example would be DMT. Um, and then we're extending their duration through slowing the breakdown uh, in the body by the body's enzymes. And we're doing this through due duration. So not wanting to get too scientific, but uh, what we're doing is we're switching out hydrogen atoms on these short-acting tryptamines with deuterium, which is heavy hydrogen. And what that does is it makes the, the molecule harder to break down, so it lasts for longer, it persists for longer in the body. So when you combine that with really smart drug delivery technologies, <clears throat> we're able to com- com- create completely novel molecules, brand new psychedelics that have a well-known underlying parent scaffold where we understand the properties, but they have a fast onset of action, they have an optimized and shorter duration and an improved side effect profile. Uh, And so at the end of the day, we want these treatments to be broadly accessible and broadly reimbursable. Is this, um, I've actually avoided asking this question because I was petrified that I would, I would not pronounce this correctly, but the, the, the Catalent, um, the, your agreement with Catalent um, is to is for this formulation of the deuterated tryptamine. Um, is that is that what you're referring to here? Yeah. yeah so look, first of all, did uh, I say it right? Yeah, you did. It's a deuterated <laughs> okay, yeah. tryptamine. That's right. Uh, yeah. And so, so tryptamines include uh, psilocybin, DMT, for example. Um, but look, first of all, it's 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 tremendous to have. Um, uh, to have partnered with such an accomplished organization like Catalan. 
that, I mean, they're, it's a, they're a huge organization. I think their market cap is 19 or $20 billion or so. So having their resources and their expertise available to Cybin uh, gives me real confidence in our ability to execute uh, efficiently. So their ODT technology, their already disintegrating tablet technology is Zydus, is unquestionably the best in the industry. It's, it's been around for a long time, <clears throat> but they've evolved it tremendously over the past decade. And I can't give too much away, but it, it, it's also uniquely suited to meet the chemical properties of CYB003. Um, so the two of them, the two things together, the molecule and the, and the, and the delivery technology are actually really well suited uh, for each other. Uh, but more on that maybe in the next uh, three months or so. Yeah, please do keep us updated on that. We we know that uh, we want to keep following this, and we know our listeners want to keep following it. So um, we we will stay close to that. But I want to you know let let's pull out our crystal ball here because you've talked about a lot of exciting things that Sybin's like experienced over the last couple of months: the Neo listing, the Kernel part, uh, the Kernel partnership, the Catalent partnership, Adelia. All these things are are really awesome, and they're doing a lot for your business. So you know crystal ball time looking at the rest of 2021 looking into even next year what excites you the most about Sybin's growth or expansion in that time oh, the most exciting thing right now is building out the teams we're doing a ton of hiring uh, right now <clears throat> to build out par- multiple parallel development teams uh, across the US uh, in Canada and in the UK. So uh, the company's really getting you're pretty sophisticated. And there's always a fun time when you see organizations move from that sort of clumsy startup phase into a professional you know, groups of people with great processes and, and, and really uh, well-working teams. So that's kind of the phase we're in now. It's, it's an exciting place to be. So um, right now, in terms of milestones, uh, we're waiting for uh, approval to start our phase 2A study. Uh, of our sublingual film formulation of psilocybin for depression, which we're hoping will have a faster onset of action, slow down, sorry, speed up some of that that time. Um, This is a study in two parts that's planned to include 160 patients in total, so a fairly big study for us. And then as we get towards the end of this year, quarter three, quarter four, uh, we're looking to file an IND for CYB003 and and start phase one studies. And that'd be really exciting because that'd be the first time one of our short acting deuterated tryptamines uh, makes it into man. Uh, so that's that's a big milestone. And then our second uh, candidate right behind that, CYB004, is expected to do the same thing in early 2022. Uh, so, so lots of good science milestones coming along. And then, as I mentioned, we're MJDS eligible uh, for US tier one uh, cross-listing. <clears throat> so that's something to look out for, certainly, in the near future. I want to talk about, uh, you know, our audience is investor focused um, and a lot of people um, make the comparison rightly or wrongly um, that the psychedelic industry is, quote unquote, the new cannabis for investors. Um, What's your opinion on that? You know, I do see the parallels um, or a couple of parallels. One with like the future commercialization of schedule one substances um, is similar and the kind of rapid expansion of the sector is similar to rapid growth we saw in cannabis. But for me, that's where the similarities end. You know, a, a tremendous amount of capital has flowed into the psychedelic space over the past 18 months. But it's all been to support the development of psychedelics as pharmaceuticals. 
Right. So, and if it were, you know, I wouldn't bet against that smart institutional money at all. Um, so, I, I, I personally though see that the best way to bring these treatments to people in need is is to do the hard work of running clinical studies and demonstrate the safety and efficacy in in those trials and and create treatments that are reimbursable so that everyone can get access. And I don't see a, a large recreational element. You know, sure, um, as these this wave of decriminalization happens, it's possible for for individuals to uh, grow their own mushrooms and, and do uh, do whatever they want to do on, on their own. I see that as completely separate than addressing the you know, sort of global widespread mental health crisis that we're facing. Well, and it's almost, you know, the they're not necessarily the same investor either because it, because, and so much of the work that we do on, on the psychedelic side um, is very much, it's exactly like the work we do for our biotech pharma clients. So um, just in that, in the practice of, you know, strategic communications, we're treating, you know, you guys and the Atai's of the world, like a, like the, the biotech, you know, innovative companies that you are versus, you know, the multi-state operators that we work with or the cannabis companies that we work with, because they're just two very, very different vehicles. And, and I would imagine that the investor base, um, is, is different. Do you, do you see that in your, in your company? I mean, is it as retail heavy or, you know, is it, is it more, um, you know, these, these biotech institutions, like you mentioned, getting, jumping in from an investment side? It, it may vary slightly from one company to another, but I, but I will say that we focus very much on institutional investors, uh, maybe a little to the detriment of, of, of the retail folks, uh, but that may change a bit as we move to a, a U.S. listing. Yeah, 95% of our, our holders um, are uh, these blue chip biotech funds. You know, I do think we're on the on the verge of a, a second wave of investment. So I think the first wave, a big influx that started, was kind of kicked off by Compass's IPO. And I think that triggered uh, a lot of a lot of institutional support. It certainly came at the perfect time for our our our, pers- our, our, our RTO in Canada, and has helped my men and has helped others. I think we're on the verge, though, as a Cybin and my med, a tie look toward U.S. listings, um, that you're going to see another second wave of capital uh, coming into the space, and a bit of a division. You're going to end up with three, four companies that have quite large balance sheets and quite distinctly separate from the rest of the pack is my expectation. And we're going to start to see over the next 12 to 18 months, you know, companies that have started up and maybe can't attract quite so much capital, some won't make it. And I think there might be a bit of a wave of consolidation uh, coming 12 to 24 months down the line. That's interesting. I have not heard that yet about the consolidation. I mean, it makes sense in, uh, now that you bring it up, but um, that will be something that I think a lot of investors will be will be following closely. Um, Doug, we have one last question for you. Thank you so much for being generous with your time. Um, we ask this question at the end of, of every interview, but it's essentially, you know, when you're looking at the where the psychedelics industry is today, um, there's been a ton of coverage um, on the growth of the industry over the last, you know, 12, 18 months. But, you know, what is the one story that you think is not being told that you would love to see on the, the front of the, the Globe and Mail, the New York Times, Boston Globe? Um, what's that one story that you think is not being told that you would love to wake up tomorrow morning and see on that A1 headline? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, unfortunately, most of the kind of popular uh, media coverage uh, 
it seems to just hark back to the fact that these drugs were, you know, party drugs in 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 the in the sixties and seventies, and that's really the the sort of the little twist of the story, and that's unfortunate because I think the real headline is that these uh, the these molecules really do have the opportunity to transform the mental health landscape. You know, when you consider that the opioid crisis has taken more lives than the HIV epidemic. It really puts into perspective, you know, the, the, the challenge ahead of us. But also, what an irony, right? So you have the war on drugs that created uh, or led to these, these molecules being scattered as Schedule 1, and yet <laughs> they now potentially could be uh, the, 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 the cure for the opioid crisis. So to me, it's a huge irony that's missed, and I hope that we can sort of calm down a bit, get away from the buzz, focus on the science, and uh, and bring some of these treatments to people that need them. Yeah, I think 100%. I think when that clinical data um, really starts uh, to to get rolled out, I, th- I think we're going to see that change. But I'm I'm right there with you, Doug. Um, but thank you so much, uh, Doug Drysdale, CEO of Cybin Inc., uh, for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure, and we'd love to have you on again in the uh, the near future. Nick and Anne, real pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for having me. Another thanks to Doug Drysdale, CEO of Sybin Incorporated. Make sure you check them out at Sybin.com. And on the NEO, ticker symbol is C-Y-B-N. And on the OTCQB, C-L-X-P-F. As always, thanks for listening to The Green Rush. If you want to chat with Ann or I, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com and make sure you're signed up for uh, our weekly newsletter that comes out every Thursday as well as subscribing to The Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay. One take. <laughs>